Hello and welcome to another episode of California Crime Stories. This podcast is brought to you by a mom and daughter podcasting duo. I'm the daughter. I'm the mom. And here we bring you true tales of murder and mystery from the Golden State. Some are old, some are new, some made national news, and some were small town stories. But all of them have piqued our interest over the years, and we know that they'll pique yours too. Maybe you joined us last episode for our deep dive into the murder of Sherry Jo Bates, and its potential link to the Zodiac murders that terrorized Northern California in the late 60s and early 70s. Today, we'll be leaving Riverside and heading north to Albany, a small city in the East Bay. For those of you who aren't so familiar with the Bay Area of California, the Bay Area encompasses the city of San Francisco and all of the neighboring counties that border on the San Francisco Bay. And as its name would suggest, the East Bay is the part of the Bay Area that is on the eastern shore of the Bay. The East Bay is connected to the city of San Francisco by the Bay Bridge. So there's Albany on the eastern shore of the Bay and just across the water from San Francisco. It's nestled between Berkeley to the south and El Cerrito to the north. Albany was home to around 15,000 people in 1963. One of those people was Judy Williamson, an 18-year-old pre-med student who disappeared that year on her way to class at UC Berkeley. On the morning of October 29, 1963, Judy Williamson left her home in Albany to walk to the bus stop, where she would catch her bus to the UC Berkeley campus. Judy never made it to that bus stop, and she would never again be seen alive. Items found in the days and weeks after Judy's disappearance suggested that she had met with foul play. And three years later, Judy Williamson's remains would be found in a wooded canyon around 100 miles from her home. Judy's killer might never have been found if it weren't for Erhard Seminar's training, or EST, a self-help course popularized in the 1970s. In 1975, a young systems analyst would attend an EST seminar in Chicago, and then would confess to an audience of over 100 fellow ESTEs that he had killed a young woman in 1963. He would later surrender to police, stand trial, and be convicted of the murder of Judy Williamson. In investigating the murder of Judy Williamson, we drew from Bob Calhoun's article in SF Weekly, which first sparked our interest in this case. From a ton of California newspaper articles from 1963, 66, 77, and 78, from a few articles about the Williamson case and about Werner Erhard in the New York Times, and from several articles in the LA Times, Psychology Today, and Mother Jones about Est and its evolution. Judy was born Judith Gale Williamson, but to her parents, Stanley and Clara Williamson, she was pumpkin. An only child, Judy was a motivated student who showed an interest in science. She won the Bay Area Science Fair Award and was an honor student at Albany High School. At 18 years old, Judy was already a sophomore at UC Berkeley, taking pre-med courses. She was working hard to earn the grades she needed to attend medical school, and she hoped to become a heart surgeon. At around 7 a.m. on Tuesday, October 29th, 
Judy Williamson kissed her father goodbye and left her family home on Jackson Street in Albany. She left home wearing a white blouse, black cardigan, and a plaid skirt. In her arms, she carried an umbrella and a straw bag full of books and school supplies. Judy began her walk to the nearby bus stop at the corner of San Pablo and Castro, where she would catch her bus to the UC Berkeley campus. It was a short walk, just around the corner and three blocks down a busy street. During the walk, she mailed a couple of letters. But before she reached the bus stop, a white 1959 or 1960 Chevrolet convertible crept up behind her. The driver was described as young and round-faced with an athletic build. Judy climbed in the car with him. She never made it to the bus stop, and on the next day, October 30th, Stanley Williamson reported to Albany police that his daughter had not returned home. Albany police began their investigation into Judy Williamson's disappearance by searching the UC Berkeley campus and the surrounding areas in response to potential sightings. Some witnesses reported seeing a young woman who matched Judy's description on campus. Others reported seeing a man and a woman struggling in a parked car off campus. None of these purported sightings or searches brought police any closer to finding Judy Williamson. But a number of pieces of evidence recovered in the days and weeks after her disappearance seemed to indicate that she had met with foul play. The day after Judy disappeared, a garbage collector found several blood-soaked books, a mechanical pencil with Judy's name stenciled on it, and several other personal items believed to belong to Judy in a garbage bin on the UC Berkeley campus. Judy's umbrella was also found, broken, in a garbage can outside of a shopping center in El Cerrito. Although the FBI tested Judy's belongings and books for fingerprints, they were unable to lift any fingerprints of value. It also became clear that Judy wasn't a runaway. She had left $30 in her dresser at home, and $2,000 untouched in her savings account. She had been saving that money for a trip to Europe. Just 10 days after Judy's murder, an Albany police inspector proclaimed that, quote, as the days go by, foul play becomes an ever stronger possibility. Three weeks after Judy's disappearance, a UC Berkeley student made another grim discovery in an underground parking lot on campus. A large pool of blood had stained the concrete floor. Another student reported having seen a man loading a large object into the trunk of his car near where that blood stain was found. The search for Judy Williamson dominated the front page of California's newspapers during those first few weeks. The only news story that could compete was the assassination of President Kennedy on November 22, 1963. In addition to conducting searches, recovering evidence, and interviewing potential eyewitnesses, Albany police spoke with a number of individuals who had connections to Judy Williamson, including seven men she had dated. Police had some suspects for the murder, and by the summer of 1964, they were convinced that Judy's killer was someone she knew. They theorized that he had offered her a ride to campus but instead drove her to a deserted area where he then killed her for resisting his advances. And yet, the trail of Judy Williamson's killer went cold. 
and another almost two years would pass before her remains were found. On April 7, 1966, 100 miles south of Albany, four men were scouring a remote wooded canyon in the Santa Cruz Mountains for leaf mold and redwood burls. There, they found partial skeletal remains, hidden in the brush near an abandoned car. The men reported their findings to the Santa Cruz County Sheriff. In a pile of litter near the body, sheriff's officers found a UC Masonic Club pin, a distinctive wristwatch, and a paring knife with a wooden handle. Based on the pin, the watch, fragments of clothing, and dental records, the remains were identified several days later as those of Judy Williamson. She had been stabbed at least 17 times through the ribcage and breastbone, and had also suffered defensive wounds. Police theorized that Judy had been murdered somewhere else, and that her killer may have rolled her body from Highway 9, which ran above the canyon, 125 feet down an embankment to its resting place near the abandoned car. The car turned out to be unconnected to Judy's case. The vehicle had stopped running in 1965, two years after Judy went missing, and instead of having it towed away, the owner decided for some reason to roll it down the embankment and into the canyon. <laughs> An odd solution to the problem. But anyways, if it weren't for the abandoned car, Judy Williamson's remains likely would never have been found. The Santa Cruz County Sheriff said that the canyon where the remains were found was a perfect hiding place. The undersheriff said that, quote, finding the skeleton was one chance in a million. Despite the discovery of Judy Williamson's remains, Albany police were still no closer to finding her killer. The years continued to tick by. Until 1975, when the solution to Judy's case came from an altogether unexpected source. A self-help course popularized in the 1970s called Earhart Seminars Training. To understand the unusual role of Earhart Seminars Training, or EST, in this case, we need to pause our look into Judy's death for just a minute to talk about EST and the place it occupies among self-help movements that really took off in the 1970s. And to maybe no one's surprise, this yearning for self-awareness would take hold very strongly in the Golden State. Werner Erhard is the founder of EST. Born Jack Rosenberg in Philadelphia, he was a car salesman and later a door-to-door -door encyclopedia salesman. Over the course of a couple of decades, he became increasingly focused on personal exploration and fulfillment and through his own pretty eclectic studies, developed his own seminar program in 1971. He also along the way adopted the more academic sounding name, Werner Erhard, after seeing the name in an Esquire magazine he read on an airplane. So there's where you get the name Erhard Seminars Training, or EST. As Laura McClure notes in an article in Mother Jones, Erhard, quote, Dabbled in Dale Carnegie. Okay, so time out for one sec. For you youngins, Dale Carnegie is a self-improvement program focused on, amongst other things, how to win friends and influence people. Hmm. It's been around since the 40s. So Earhart dabbled in Dale Carnegie, Zen, and Scientology 
before seizing upon the idea that you and only you are responsible for your own happiness or unhappiness, success or failure. Now, this isn't actually so revolutionary of a concept. It forms the basis of much of cognitive behavioral therapy, and it makes more sense to me than the other word salad offered up by Est, which is that it aims to, quote, transform one's ability to experience living so that situations one had been trying to change or had been putting up with clear up just in the process of life itself. So, so go chew on that no one for a little bit. Means. <laughs> Me neither. Um, so Eric Jaffe wrote in the LA Times that Est promised, quote, direction, empowerment, and enlightenment in seminars that challenged folks to throw away their old belief systems and embrace the beauty of the present moment. So getting to this point of enlightenment was known as getting it. Got air quotes going here. And those who got it would gain control over their lives. Now, getting to this place of enlightenment was not a task for the faint of heart. Headquartered in San Francisco, Est offered six-day, 60-hour seminars nationwide. These seminars were held over two consecutive weekends. Now, these seminars had marathon sessions lasting up to 15 hours that were legendary for their restrictive structure. No watches, no speaking until you were called upon, no talking with fellow attendees, no eating or bathroom trips except during infrequent breaks, say like two throughout the entire 15-hour session. Lord. Yeah, I would not make that. Est also employed confrontational tactics like calling their attendees assholes, um, which probably would be termed as verbal abuse these days. Um, But they also combined this sort of confrontational abusive language with vague t-shirt slogans such as, what is, is, and what ain't, ain't. So the mission of this training process, according to Psychology Today, was to, quote, tear you down and put you back together. So critics of the EST process note its cult-like characteristics and the emotional and physical distress it caused attendees, as well as the pressure put on participants to continue bringing in new recruits to the movement. Like Scientology, it profited greatly off the labor of unpaid, quote-unquote, volunteers. Yet those for whom EST clicked felt that their seminar work freed them from the past, both from past patterns of behavior as well as past specific acts. Many seminar graduates believed that the true value of the EST process for them lay in the sharing of their experience on an intimate basis with others. It's these last two concepts of freeing oneself from the past and this sharing on an intimate basis with others that may well explain what happens next in the Judy Williamson murder investigation. In 1975, two days into an EST seminar in Chicago, 
a man would confess to the audience of over 100 fellow Estes that he had killed a young woman in 1963. That man was Joseph Otto Eggenberger, and that young woman was Judy Williamson. Joseph Eggenberger had grown up in Albany, where his father was the mayor in the early 1960s. Joseph and Judy had actually been friends, neighbors, and classmates since childhood. Both graduated from Albany High School in 1962, and both were attending UC Berkeley in 1963. It's been reported that the two dated occasionally in high school and during their freshman year of college. But it's also been reported that Joseph developed a crush on Judy when the two began carpooling to campus together, but that she wasn't really interested. So we're not exactly sure what their history was. On the morning of October 29, 1963, Joseph offered Judy a ride to UC Berkeley. By the time Joseph parked his white Chevrolet convertible in the campus parking garage, he had become, quote, filled with an overwhelming feeling or need to kill Judy. Joseph picked up a paring knife that he left in the backseat of his car and held it against her. It was at this point that Judy asked, What will your father say about this? You can get help, she said. There are ways to help you. Joseph tried to strangle Judy with a drawstring from a duffel bag. And when that didn't work, the two began to struggle. Judy grabbed the door handle and got halfway out of the car before Joseph stabbed her at least 17 times with his paring knife. He then put Judy's body into the trunk of his car and started driving. He ended up 100 miles south in the Santa Cruz Mountains, where he left the body in the canyon where it would be found two and a half years later. He then drove to Berkeley, and on October 30th, the day after Judy Williamson's murder, he drove down to Los Angeles. Along the way, he was stopped by a highway patrol officer on Highway 99 in Bakersfield for speeding. The officer thought it was odd that Eggenberger burst into tears after being pulled over. And he held Eggenberger for two hours, during which time he contacted law enforcement in Albany. But when he learned that Joseph Eggenberger was the son of the mayor and had no outstanding warrants, the officer let Eggenberger go. After arriving in Los Angeles, Eggenberger bought some chemicals that he poured into the trunk of his car to eliminate any trace of Judy Williamson's blood. He also steamed cleaned the trunk of his car. After several days, he returned home to Albany. Joseph Eggenberger was the Albany police's chief suspect throughout their years-long investigation into the disappearance and murder of Judy Williamson. Investigators who interviewed Eggenberger at the time said that some of his answers disturbed them. When police asked why he had been in Los Angeles immediately after Judy's disappearance, Eggenberger said that he had gone to see a football game between USC and Cal. The game was actually scheduled for Saturday, several days later. And when asked which team had kicked off, Eggenberger said, well, he didn't know because he hadn't actually seen the game. He had inconveniently fallen ill. Eggenberger also refused to take a polygraph. And police even searched his car. They found that the trunk mat was missing from the car 
and that, as we've mentioned, the vehicle had recently been steam cleaned. And yet, Joseph Eggenberger was never charged. Remember how we said that his father had been the mayor of Albany? Well, Joseph Eggenberger Sr. was the mayor in October 1963, when Judy Williamson went missing. And while he was serving as mayor, he was also serving as Albany's police commissioner. Oh boy. So if that set off uh, a million little siren emojis in your head, not to worry. The acting police chief in 1963 said that mayor slash police commissioner Eggenberger did not interfere in the investigation of his own son. Hmm. Hmm. Anyways, Joseph Eggenberger would drop out of UC Berkeley in 1964, but he finished his degree at San Francisco State in 1968. In 1969, he began working as a systems analyst at the United States Steel Corporation in San Francisco. In 1972, he was transferred to Chicago. It was there in 1975 that Joseph Eggenberger would attend an EST seminar and confess to the murder he had committed 12 years earlier. No one who had attended the EST seminar in 1975 and heard Joseph Eggenberger's confession reported it to police. But the Est experience certainly made an impression on Eggenberger. Soon after, he confessed his crime several more times to co-workers and friends in Chicago and told them that he planned to turn himself in to police. Eggenberger's friends urged him to forget the whole thing, but they could see that his mind was made up. Because of his experience with Est, Eggenberger had come to believe that in order to continue living, to be a productive member of society, and to be psychologically free, he needed to accept and admit his responsibility for Judy Williamson's death. So Joseph Eggenberger began a year-long plan to surrender to police for the murder of Judy Williamson. He began saving a salary from United States Steel to pay for his future bail and legal fees. He began reading about prison life and took up a very intense form of massage called rolfing. Do your own research on rolfing, because it is so weird. To prepare himself for the physical demands of prison. In 1977, he quit his job in Chicago, packed up his belongings, and moved back into his mother's house in Albany. He took his close friends and family members aside individually to tell them that he had committed a murder and planned to turn himself into police. They apparently had had no idea. Shortly before his surrender, Eggenberger hired a lawyer. And on November 30, 1977, 14 years after the murder of Judy Williamson, Joseph Eggenberger turned himself in to Albany police and confessed to her murder. Now, I know you're dying to find out what Werner Erhard, a.k.a. Jack Rosenberg, the founder of S had to say about Joseph Eggenberger turning himself into police. In his public statement, he said, quote, I am moved by Joe's courage in honestly and responsibly confronting his past. 
he has my full support in completing this horrendously difficult situation for himself and all others concerned. The trial of Joseph Eggenberger began on March 28, 1978. Although Eggenberger had been indicted for first-degree murder, Superior Court Judge Hugh Coford told the jury of five men and seven women that they could return four possible verdicts. The first, a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder, which would require proof of premeditation. The second, a verdict of guilty of second-degree murder. The third, a verdict of guilty of manslaughter, which would mean immediate release because the statute of limitations for manslaughter had already expired. And the fourth possible verdict, a verdict of not guilty. During the trial, the question of premeditation was critical. It would determine the jury's verdict and Eggenberger's fate. Several of the witnesses called by the prosecution would speak to whether Judy Williamson's murder had been a planned act or the product of a sudden violent urge. One of these witnesses was Donald Kidd, Joseph Eggenberger's supervisor at United States Steel. He said that shortly before Eggenberger's surrender to police, he had asked to be transferred to Oakland while he worked out the legal issues that would result from his surrender. Eggenberger told a supervisor that, quote, I killed a girl in California 14 years ago. Now I want to get it off my mind. I want to clear up my life. According to Kidd, Eggenberger also said, quote, I did it. I planned it. But was he referring to having planned the murder itself or having planned his surrender to police? Of course, the prosecutor would argue the former, and his defense attorney would swear to the latter. The jury deliberated for five days, and in the end, their verdict was complicated. They agreed that Joseph Eggenberger was guilty of murder, but did not agree on the degree of guilt. Ten jurors voted for first-degree murder. The other two voted for second-degree murder. Therefore, Judge Coford set the verdict at second-degree murder, and on May 24, 1978, he sentenced Joseph Eggenberger to ten years to life in prison, with the possibility of parole in four years. The judge denied the defense's request for probation rather than prison time. Now, if you think the sentence of 10 years to life with the possibility of parole in four years for murdering Judy was astonishingly low, man, oh man, do we agree with you. That sentence, however, was not out of the normal and expected range in the California justice system of the early to mid-70s. I did a little dive into the literature to find out why. I found a very helpful article by Matthew Green that explains that prior to 1977, prison sentences handed down by California courts were pretty broad-ranging, say, like five years to life for armed robbery, ten years to life for Judy's murder, and after serving the minimal period of time, then a parole board would determine the offender's remaining length of sentence. So this process is known as indeterminate sentencing. And the point of it was to incentivize good behavior and encourage attempts at rehabilitation while incarcerated, like participating in therapy, getting or finishing one's education, having a job in prison, these sorts of things. These activities would positively impact a parole board's likeliness to shorten a prisoner's sentence. 
So the aim of California's correction system during that era was more of rehabilitation rather than punishment. But feelings about this type of sentencing grew a lot more negative as the 70s wore on. Folks became skeptical that rehabilitation really worked, and many felt that parole boards were releasing prisoners too early. At the same time, giving parole boards so much discretion over upward or downward adjustment of the sentencing also raised concerns over disparate outcomes based on race. So these concerns, plus an overriding focus on getting tough on crime, led to an overhaul in sentencing policy. So for post-1977 felony convictions, fixed prison terms are the standard, and offenders no longer appear before a parole board prior to release. The current stated purpose of imprisonment for crime, according to California's sentencing law, is punishment. That's interesting. That means that Joseph Eggenberger would have just snuck in there because he was sentenced in 1978, so maybe that policy hadn't taken effect yet? I think it was because the, the murder oh, took the place crime. in 63, so you have to do the sentencing according to the standards that were in place at, time. at the time. Okay, got it. Well, in case you still don't think it was Est that brought us to a resolution in this case... Almost 15 years after Judy Williamson's murder, listen to what Judge Coford had to say at Joseph Eggenberger's sentencing. Quote, He's just as nice a boy now as he was in 1963 when he stabbed Judy Williamson 17 times. Mr. Eggenberger confessed for the purpose of punishment, of cleansing himself. That's what Est is about. We know almost nothing about what happened to Joseph Eggenberger after he was sentenced on May 24, 1978. We don't even know how much time he served in prison. But we do know, I think we're almost pretty confident, that he's still alive today. It appears that he's still living in Northern California. He's 76 years old, and that's about how old Judy Williamson would be were she alive today. Even Earhart Seminar's training lives on, under a different name and different management, but with similar teachings. In 1985, Werner Earhart rebranded Est as, quote, the Forum, which was less confrontational and more success-oriented than its 1970s predecessor. But in the early 90s, Earhart ran into some troubles with the IRS and the Church of Scientology, Yikes. two organizations you do not want to get in trouble with. Before leaving the country, Erhard sold his intellectual property to his employees and to his brother, Harry Rosenberg. Today, Werner Erhard's ideas endure in the form of Est 3.0. It's called Landmark, and Harry Rosenberg is the CEO. Landmark is way more mainstream and corporate than Est ever was. Its client companies include Reebok, Microsoft, NASA, and Lululemon. About 130,000 people participate in Landmark's leadership and professional and personal development programs every year on every continent except Antarctica. For now. The murder of Judy Williamson is unlike the other cases we've covered so far in the podcast in that we know, without a doubt, 
What happened to Judy after she got into Joseph Eggenberger's car on October 29, 1963? We know who her killer was, and it's been proven beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. So obviously we don't have any theories to share with you about how or when or why Judy died. But we still wanted to share our own conclusions and share what this case has left us thinking about. And I wish that I had some eloquent final thoughts to share with you about this case, but more than anything, it just made me really angry. Like, profoundly disgusted and disappointed with my fellow human beings. In the 14 years between his murder of Judy Williamson and his surrender to police, Joseph Eggenberger confessed his crime to over 100 strangers and several close friends and co-workers. And none, none of those people came forward until Eggenberger had already turned himself into police. And that is unbelievable and unconscionable to me. I have plenty of friends and co-workers that I love dearly, but if any of them told me that they had murdered someone and hadn't gone to jail for it, I wouldn't hesitate, and I'm sure none of you normal human beings would either. And I certainly wouldn't tell my friend to forget about the whole thing, as Joseph Eggenberger's friends did. I think it takes a special kind of lack of empathy for the victim and their loved ones to say and do something like that. And to hear what Werner Earhart had to say when Joseph Eggenberger surrendered to police... And what Judge Coford had to say when he sentenced Eggenberger to 10 years to life, that Eggenberger was courageous, that he was going through a horrendously difficult situation, that he is as nice a boy now as he was in 1963 when he stabbed Judy Williamson 17 times. Like, I'm sorry, are we talking about the same Joseph Eggenberger who stabbed Judy Williamson 17 times and rolled her body into a ravine because she didn't want to be with him? To hear men, and especially someone like Judge Coford, who was in a position of power in our judicial system, and who to a certain extent decided the fate of the people who entered into his courtroom, say that Joseph Eggenberger was a nice boy who went through a hard time and did a courageous and responsible thing in admitting to murder, that makes me angry. Like Madeline Kahn and Clue, flames on the side of my face, <laughs> angry. And as much as I want to think that our society, our country, and heck, the state of California, which we love, have changed in the almost 60 years since Judy Williamson was killed, I want to think that. But then I remember the case of Brock Turner, the Stanford student you might remember who raped a fellow student, Chanel Miller, behind a dumpster after a frat party in 2015. Chanel Miller was unconscious when Brock Turner raped her. But Turner went to jail for only three months because the judge thought a harsher sentence, quote, would have a severe impact on him. It sounds familiar. I'm really glad that we were able to tell Judy Williamson's story because it and she deserve to be known. But at the same time, there are so many, way too many women, like Judy Williamson, like Sherry Jo Bates, like Kristen Smart, like so many others who were killed by men in their lives who would not take no for an answer. Men who, when confronted by the idea that a woman did not belong to him, became so indignant that they took her life. 
that makes me angry and it should make you angry too. So be angry about it and stay angry and don't apologize to anyone for being angry. And that's my takeaway. And I say, yeah, ditto. Amen, sister. Um, my frustration at our lack of real and lasting progress as a culture on this b- renders me pretty much incoherent. So I'm thankful that you are able to, in the words that moms everywhere use, use your words <laughs> to speak for the both of us. I try. So now that we've finished our dive into the murder of Judy Williamson, we'd like to close with a segment we're calling CCS Recommends, where we'll each be sharing with you a movie, book, podcast, recipe, artist, or other cool thing that we're enjoying at the moment. My recommendation for this episode is a short story writer named Lucia Berlin. I was first introduced to her work by a dear friend and listener, I won't mention her by name, but she knows who she is. Lucia Berlin published 77 stories in her lifetime, but she wouldn't become well-known or well-read until after her death. During her eventful life, Lucia lived in Alaska, New Mexico, New York, Texas, Chile, Mexico, California, Colorado, and the mining towns of Middle America. She worked as a cleaning woman, hospital clerk, physician's assistant, switchboard operator, high school teacher, and college professor, all while writing, raising her four kids, and battling alcoholism. Her stories are very clearly influenced by her multicultural and multilingual growing up in several different countries. Her struggles with alcohol and failed relationships, and her experiences with abuse, addiction, and loss. Some of her stories are no longer than a page, and yet her characters are so complete and vivid, and the world that she creates just jumps off the page. I recommended her writing to lots of folks I know who listen to the podcast, so she'll be familiar to you. But if you've never heard of her, you can check out her two most widely available short story collections, which are called Evening in Paradise and A Manual for Cleaning Women. Or you can read her memoir, which is called Welcome Home. So again, her name is Lucia Berlin. She's my recommendation for today. So my recommendation, it's a podcast I've just begun listening to called Doing Justice. It's a six-part pod hosted by Preet Bharara, who is the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. If that name rings a bell, he has another pod called Stay Tuned which has been around, I don't know, for about three years now, maybe, and is excellent also. Plus, he got fired by Trump. He's kind of famous for that, Yes, yes. So what drew me to recommend this podcast, even though I haven't listened to more than an episode and a half thus far, so, I mean, my due diligence is a little shaky on this one, but the focus of the first episode really struck me because I found it an antidote to some of the frustration I think we're both feeling Mm -hmm. about the case we've just shared with you. The first episode of Doing Justice focuses on the case of Eric Glisson, who was wrongly convicted of a murder in the Bronx and sentenced to 25 years to life. 17 years into his sentence, 
and he's at Sing Sing Prison, upstate New York, there's this remarkable confluence of Eric, who strives hard to maintain a positive outlook, even as his sequence of appeals is rejected and continues to maintain his innocence throughout, and a lawyer who was not even a criminal lawyer, but was willing to take on Eric's case, and an investigator whose memory of that long-ago case was jogged by a letter sent by Eric asserting his innocence. Add in a couple of prosecutors, including Preet, willing to acknowledge that mistakes may have been made. So I'm not going to do any more spoilers here. I'm not going to give you any more details except to say that both unbelievable bad luck and unbelievably good luck can be at play in any case. And my takeaway, as Preet says, is that law doesn't do justice. People do. And unfortunately, I feel as though that's what was lacking in Judy's case. The difficulty in researching these older cases is that sometimes we don't really know how rigorous the initial police investigations were. We do know that Albany police considered Joseph Eggenberger their prime suspect, yet he was never arrested. And it's hard for me to believe that the fact that his dad was mayor and police commissioner didn't have something to do with that. Mm -hmm. And another way that justice was lacking in this case is the appalling inaction of no less than a hundred people that Joseph Eggenberger confessed to. And then to me, the final insult was the leniency of his sentence. I do acknowledge that sentencing guidelines in California were different then, but the parole board had the ability to hold him to account in a more fulsome way, and they failed. So the case of Eric Glisson, where justice prevailed in the end, is the antidote that I needed this week. So check out the show notes for the link to Doing Justice. And thanks again for tuning in to another episode of California Crime Stories. If you have any questions or feedback for us, or if you want to suggest a case that you think we should cover in a future episode, send us an email at feedback at ccspod.com. We would love to hear from you. Our podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, on our website, ccspod.com, and on lots of other platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you give us a review, whatever you think, on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, at the Pod, where we'll be posting some photos and letting you know about upcoming episodes. California Crime Stories is researched, written, and produced by your hosts, with artwork also provided by us. Our theme is Arcadia by Cody Martin. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.